My name is Nikita Banks and I am your host of the Black Therapist Podcast. The Black Therapist Podcast is a podcast where we discuss the unique issues people of color face when dealing with mental health issues and mental health diagnosis. If you are a therapist and you want to appear on the show, make sure that you email us at blacktherapistpodcast at gmail.com. You can sign up for our mailing list at blacktherapistpodcast.com and you can shoot me a show suggestions, feedback back people to interview whatever whatever uh we take all kind of requests all kinds of um emails and we would love to hear from you and our podcast is found on apple Podcasts, google play youtube iHeartRadio, spotify stitcher and soundcloud okay so let's get in started let's get in started let's get All right, so today's guest is Racine R. Henry. You are uh, a doctor, Racine R. Henry. You are a PhD and um, LMFT. Uh, First of all, tell uh, the listeners what what that means. An LMFT is someone who is a licensed marriage and family therapist. So it makes sound like I am trained in only treating couples and families, but in actuality, the field of marriage and family therapy is about um, a different approach to treating mental health. So rather than looking at just the individual person, we do what is called relational therapy, which means that if even if an individual person comes into my office for therapy, we're going to be talking about their relationship to themselves and the world, their relationship to the community that they're a part of their work environment, their friends, loved ones, significant other, and how the problem they're coming to therapy for shows up in all those different systems, as we call it. Mm-hmm. So we take a, a systemic approach to what needs to happen in this person's life in order for them to feel better in all parts of themselves, in all the different places and spaces that they occupy in the world. So we talk a lot about social justice. We talk a lot about... Um, you know, different cultural factors. We talk a lot about how a person locates themselves socially and what those identities mean for them and the problems that they're coming to therapy for. Gotcha. So do you primarily work with couples? Do you primarily work with individuals? Um, I think right now my caseload is a mixed bag of couples, individuals, and I have a few families that I'm working with as well. So it's it's maybe a 50-50 split, but primarily individual people. Often what will happen, though, with individual um, clients is they may bring in their partner or spouse or a parent or a friend um, throughout the um, treatment. Okay. And where are you from originally? I'm originally from um, Brooklyn, New York. I currently live in <laughs> I currently live in Staten Island, New York, and my family is from Jamaica. Okay, and so I know culturally, uh, Jamaican specifically, uh, there's a, a large pushback for mental health services in the community. So, how have you been able to tackle that with the clients that you have, or just the just people who know what you do in general? Um, ironically enough, uh, I feel that my family and other um, West Indian communities I'm part of, their reaction is, oh, you're a doctor. That's what they sort of want yeah, okay. to more. And they want to label me as a psychiatrist or a psychologist. 
And when I explain to them, you know, I'm a marriage and family therapist, they immediately say, oh, you can help me with my marriage. You can help me with my relationship. And so as we talk more about, no, this is about you, and it can be about your couplehood too, but, you know, it's not exclusive to one or the other. Um, I often get a reaction of, oh, so you think that you know me. You think you know what I'm thinking. You think that yes. you know what I'm dealing with. Well, don't read my mind. I'm like, I'm not a psychic. Right. But a lot of my family and friends who are Jamaican or West Indian period, you know, they do reach out to me about mental health um, concerns. They do understand the need for mental health services. And that's why it's very important for me to be visible as a black Jamaican therapist um, and not have that be overshadowed by a degree or a license or a title. I'm a black woman, I'm a Jamaican woman, I'm a therapist, and all of those different parts matter. I mean something. So um, I have a private practice that I you know, run in New York City as well as a group practice that I'm a part of. And in my private practice, um, my clients there are primarily black women. And that's partially because they find me from the Therapy for Black Girls website. Okay. Um, but in Staten Island, the group practice I'm part of, the clients there are primarily white women um, and older white women. So it's a very different um, experience in the two, you know, practices. But I think that me being a black woman, of course, shows up in both places. So um, it, it's used differently, I believe, in the two practices as well. Okay. How do you navigate the difference in those spaces? Because I previously worked at a more white practice when I I used to work in Regal Park, um, Queens, which is a predominantly immigrant, but more so, you know, either white or like a Chinese area and just navigate in the spaces where all of my coworkers were white and the majority of my clients were white and they actively openly advocated racism in a way, not my, not my, not my coworkers, but in terms of like my clients would literally tell me, Oh, I really, I usually don't like black people, but you're cool. Or I don't like, um, you know, people of color or I hate black. Like you'll sit in the therapy session with a black therapist and be like, I hate black people. And for me, I had to navigate self care in a different way. And Staten Island is notoriously racist. (laughs) Not only is it racist, this is very pro-cop because there is a lot of police that live in that area. So how do you navigate those spaces? Well, I've lived in Staten Island since I was about seven years old. But I chose to go to to high school back in Brooklyn because I've never really liked Staten Island or felt comfortable here. Mm. But having um, gone to school here and, you know, I've... I've always been around predominantly white people. Um, and not because there aren't black people on Staten Island, but just because of where I lived and the school that I was in. It, it wasn't a, it's not a foreign space to me to be the only black face in a classroom or in a grade or in a room. So while it's comfortable, it hasn't always been easy. And I think as I've grown up and learned more about social justice and cultural confidence and, you know, residuals from slavery and all those different um, aspects, I think I've sort of looked back on some of my experiences and realized, wow, people were really racist, or they really discriminated against me, but I didn't realize it as that, because 
it was just me. There was no one around to, you know, to sort of point that out or to reflect on that with me. And because my parents both grew up in the West Indies, my household was primarily Jamaican, I think, before it was the American or African-American experience. Mm-hmm. So I was always identifying as a Jamaican person. And I think that that made me other um, from people around me anyway. But when you're, the, when you're the only person of your kind in a, in a space, you sort of adapt and assimilate to those around you because you're outnumbered and their culture, you know, dominates yours. So... Um, I think that I am able to sort of relate to both sides. So I very much understand and um, can move through the Staten Island culture because it's primarily Italian, you know, culture, Italian Catholic culture. Um, but I don't shy away from or hide the fact that I, well, you know, I, that I see racism and that I promote um, pushback against white supremacy. So what will happen most often in my practice is they have no idea who Dr. Sorry, who Dr. Henry is before coming to see me. And um, so they'll be in the waiting room with a bunch of other clients, and I'll come out and greet my client, shake their hands, and say, hi, I'm Dr. Henry. And there's always a reaction from everyone in the waiting room. There's always a reaction of, I don't know if it's because I'm black, because I'm a woman, or because I'm younger looking, mm-hmm. that they have a visceral reaction to, oh, you're Dr. Henry. You know, and I've never had anyone say to my face, I didn't know you were going to be black, but they show that on their face and how we interact. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never had a client blatantly um, say something like, I don't normally talk to black people or I don't um, like black people, but they will say things like, I'm surprised that you're um, practicing therapy here in Staten Island. And the area that my office is in is a very upper class, predominantly, if not exclusively, white area. So it's interesting to um, have the only PhD or doctor in my office. So it's very interesting when they'll, you know, um, let's say I have a client and she brings in her daughter for therapy with another colleague of mine. They'll assume my colleague is a doctor also. And my colleagues are always very quick to say, no, I'm not. Dr. Henry's only doctor here. Dr. Henry is our doctor here. And so they, they always, I think, have a feeling of, well, why can't I have the doctor too, right? Or um, sometimes they prefer to not have another clinician there, even though they're white and they feel more comfortable with them because they want to feel like I'm getting the best care possible because this person has a PhD and that person doesn't. And so with my clients, um, there are a few times where they've opted to see other people after seeing me and I think it's because I'm not white, which is fine. I think that I'm able to separate out my personhood from my clinical work where I believe that people who come into therapy need to get the best care possible regardless of who that is, whether it's me or somebody else. Right. So if the client feels like they're more comfortable with somebody else, whatever the reasons are, then go ahead and do. But um, the director of our clinic and, um, you know, the other clinicians there, we all sort of have conversations and, and agree on the fact that we're not going to tolerate racism. We're not going to tolerate someone expressing, even in therapy, ideas or beliefs that are um, discriminatory. So not saying you'll be kicked out of therapy if you're, you know, if you don't like uh, people who are of 
other than you. But we have had some clients come there and express to the director or somebody else, I don't want to see the black therapist or I don't want black people treating my children. And those people are referred other places. Um, so it's, it's never been um, anything that I can recall in the four years of me working there that, that's been um, too discriminatory. And I was the first person she hired ever, and my director is not a black woman or woman of color. So um, I feel supported there. I feel that um, I'm respected there. Um, and so if there's anything else that happens that isn't supportive of me or my you know comfort level, I have no idea about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your process to become a therapist, um, because yours is different education wise than mine. Do you want to explain what the difference in your education is or your educational background experience? And then I have a follow up question. (laughs) So to become a therapist, um, I always knew I wanted to be a doctor, and I imagined as a child I'd be a, a physician. I always wanted to be um, a pediatrician, I believe. And so as I got into high school and college, I quickly realized that physics and chemistry, all those things that me do not agree. We don't get along, and that wasn't going to happen. Um, so for a while in college, I thought about becoming a teacher. Um, and then... When I got into my sociology 101 class, I remember there was a section on um, treating families or working with families and children. And I really loved that whole idea of being a clinician and working with families and children. And my advisor at the time exposed me to or introduced me to that the field of matching family therapy. And he spoke to me about how um, divorces in certain states were becoming more of a legal process where couples were mandated to couple therapy before being able to pursue a legal divorce. And so he was sort of pushing it from the angle of, you know, we're going to need more couple therapists in the in the world or in this country if this happens across the nation that the law is changed in that way. And so I looked into um, matching them with therapy graduate programs. I knew that I didn't want to be in an area where um, there was snow, so I went to a school in Georgia. And um, from the very first day of being in this matching family therapy program, I felt like I finally found my thing. Um, you know, I feel like I, I feel like I finally found not only my career but also my passion around this is something I can dedicate my life to and myself to um, forever. And I've never looked back since then. So that was back in 2007 when I began my um, graduate career. And um, I've always loved being a, a clinician primar- primarily, but I um, am also a professor online right now, and I've worked in other you know brick and mortar institutions. And um, I think that in my doctoral program is where my focus towards working with black couples and black people came up. I was very fortunate to go to a program um, that had primarily black um, professors, and that was the first time in my academic career that I had a black male professor or a black female professor. And so um, being in a, a cohort as a program where not only were the professors looking like me, but my, my um, classmates also looked like me, and also very diverse as well, that I think was um, a pivotal point in my career where I was able to learn more about myself as a black woman, but also about um, the black community and the unique struggles that we have in 
mental health, but also in the in the world, and how um, I can play a role in making that difference. So, in terms of training, um, I I know that for social work it's different than you know I guess theoretically for uh, magic family therapists, but. Um, I was drawn to being a magic family therapist because I have a fascination with relationships, with romantic relationships. So that was what drew me in. But I was happy to learn along the way that there was a science behind it and it wasn't just about talking about feelings or love or making up. You know, it was really about how people relate to each other and how do um, problems, you know, how do problems form, but also how are problems resolved in the context of, of social relationships. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've recently wrote a book. It's called Finding Happy, Seven Steps to Relationships That Will Not Steal Your Joy. And um, it's based a lot on, you know, some relational principles. Because I, in my practice with mostly black women um, in my private practice, a lot of what I see is relationship issues. Right. Um, whether they're relationship issues at work, whether women are not being assertive, people not knowing exactly what they need, not knowing how to ask for their needs or or even negotiate life in a way to get their needs met. So um, the book focuses on that. I, I just just in, in practice here, I think your mentors matter. Um, so you had that that professor that told you, listen, this is the way that you should go about this. My um, my my therapist kind of was my mentor when I decided that I wanted to be a therapist, and he was the one that that kind of advised me against PhD programs. Okay, um, in the PsyD specifically. Um, so for you, was it the need to have your DR? before your name or or like did you feel community pressure or cultural pressure to do that or did you feel that this is just something that you wanted to accomplish well I definitely didn't have any cultural or community pressure because they all thought I was crazy to still be in school all these years and to keep you know um, going forward with the masters and a PhD and the debt um, the debt and the, yes the debt was a big part of it yeah um my mother actually has her phd as well she got her phd um she finished i believe a year or two ago so throughout my college career and graduate school career she was going through her own undergraduate and graduate career as well I'm sort of like in a friendly competition about who would finish first so she was definitely a big supporter and inspiration for me of always shooting higher, always pursuing dreams and goals. My mother loved school, though, and I don't like school that much. So it wasn't that I had the same drive as she did in terms of just loving academia. But um, I got the PhD. Part of it was wanting the, the DR in front of my name and wanting to be called doctor. But the other part of it for me was about wanting to teach. And when I was in my graduate program, um, my professors there who were not were all women but not women of color at all they all encouraged me to pursue a phd if i wanted to be um, a professor at the collegiate or graduate level so that was my main um 
there's motivation behind it because in our field, you don't need a PhD to be a clinician or to practice or to have right. practice. So it's really about my um, aspirations of being in academia as a professor. And um, throughout the program, I think my motivation was maintained by the fact that I was working alongside all these amazing people of color as well. Yeah. I think if I hadn't gone to a PhD program, that was so immersive in cultural competence. And the program itself has a very big social justice um, component to it. We talk about social justice in every single class. It's not just like a, an aside. It really is a thread of the program. So I think if I hadn't had that experience, I don't know if I would have finished my PhD. I don't know if I would have sought it, sought it all the way through because you know, a big part of a PhD, in my opinion, is a mental game. It's really about your personal stamina and your ability to sort of have life happening but also be in this academic program and see it through. So I think the community that I was in and the mentors that I had then and still have now were a very big part of my success for sure. Yeah. I mean, for for me, because I applied to a DSW program, mm-hmm. um, to tack on the debt that I already have, like, I, I, right. I was lucky enough to graduate from undergraduate college with absolutely zero debt. So I went to, Ooh. yes, Lord, I graduated <laughs> with zero debt. So to go to NYU and then rack up, you know, this additional, of course. you know, $40,000 was like, dang. And in and, and comparison to going to CUNY, which is where I, I applied, um, which was ranked about the same. And I think, th- I think there I would have graduated with about fifteen or $20,000 in debt. Um, so the thought of going to a PhD program, which it wasn't relatively, it wasn't that, I mean, not a PhD program, sorry, to, to get my DSW, it wasn't super expensive. Like I still would have graduated with under a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. It's like, it's like, that's a house though, you know, in some places, like I can, I can literally buy a house with this and it was my white counterparts in, in, um, social work school because I I attended NYU who were like it doesn't matter whether you have the DR in front of your name or not they're gonna still call you doctor and I was like I like why would I be called something that I'm not but sure enough in the field with my clients like I have a a few clients that are like okay doc and I'm like I do you know that I'm not you know that I'm not a doctor, but I guess they feel like if you, if you're in a clinical setting and you help them, I came to you, I wasn't, I was feeling bad and now I feel better. You're a doctor. Like they don't see the the difference in the nuances in the training. But again, like, like you said, I always, you know, correct them and let them know that that's not what I, what I am. For me, I still consider sometimes getting that DR and and I I don't know if this is your experience you can let me know whether you agree or disagree but for me as a black woman I always feel like I have to have that extra you know yeah you know I know a lot of uh even MSWs I know tons and tons and tons of black women who are MSWs who are not licensed 
And I'm like, you got to get your credentials. So I get having, you know, the, the doctorate, both my own son in college right now and thinking of my own self going back. Like if I would have gotten into the DSW program that I applied to, we both would have been in college at the same time. Like financially, it would have almost been no way. Like financially. Um, but yeah, we have to do better as a community, um, and as a country to navigate this, this whole educational thing, because we're going to need more doctors. We're going to need more lawyers. We're going to need, you know, more infrastructure people who take care of our community. And when you go in the hospitals, cause I'm, I'm on psych rotation at several hospitals in the area, they're filled with immigrants. Yeah. They're filled with West Indian people. They're filled with with Indian people. They're filled with Hispanic people. They're filled with immigrants. So our health care is full of immigrants, yet and still there are these policies in place that don't allow for us to stay healthy and stay well. It just seems so counterproductive. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so I definitely agree. I think that like again, I've been working in this um, particular group practice for the last the last four years, and you know, so I was in the practice. I came into it when I was in my PhD program, and I've stayed on since getting my doctorate. But there's been a very big difference in how the white people in this area receive me, pre doctorate and post doctorate. Mm. So when I was not Dr. Henry, I was just oh, this is your therapist, you know. Miss Henry or whatever, um, they would have all these questions, questions about how can you help me? You're, you look so young. You don't know what I'm going through. How can you help us? You, you're not married. You don't know what married people go through. You're not a mother. How do you know, you know, um, how to help me be a parent? And so since having the doctorate, I don't have those questions anymore at all. I've not been asked a single question about my expertise, my ability to relate, my my knowledge, none of that since having a doctor. They, there's an assumption that comes along with it that you're qualified and that you have the, the knowledge and the necessary tools. Um, and so it's really interesting that since becoming, you know, since starting my practice, I've become a mother, I've, you know, I have a PhD, but I don't have the same reception from clients, both black and non-people uh, of color um, as I did before. So I think you're right about there being an assumption attached to the clinical setting and just the fact that you have the skills to help a person that they assume that you're you you know that you're a doctor or they have in their minds that only doctors are in these sorts of places or do this kind of work. So I can totally relate to that part. But I boss up on them. I let them know. Even if I... <laughs> Even if I was, right. if even if I was Doctor Banks, DSW, I would still have to have the license I have right now. I have the highest license that I can have in my field. Right. So I know plenty of doc, you know, um, DSWs or PhDs who are social workers who need to pass my test, and I pass it on first try. Who need to pass need my test? <laughs> All right, need to pass my test in order to get there, and so. Yeah. I let them know that in terms of licensure, I have the highest license that I can have in my field. And even if I was, you know, Dr. Nikita Banks with a, you know, a DSW or a PhD, that this is what I would still have to have. I would still have to achieve where I am right now. And then they kind of back down. Yeah, I think you make a good point because I think that there's a lot of irresponsible mental health care out there. A lot of irresponsible um, treatment and horrible therapy. Yes. And I think that 
people don't understand that idea of professional responsibility. That even though I have a PhD, I don't think I'm the best therapist in the world. I don't think I'm the best therapist for every single client. I know what my knowledge base is in. I know what my wheelhouse is. And I know what my limits are. So, for example, I'm working on a book that's supposed to be a primer for treating black couples. And I know that my focus is going to be on heterosexual couples. Not that I don't treat um, non-heterosexual couples, because I do. And not that I don't know how to treat them. But I know that to be responsible for what that community deserves is to have someone else who's that their expertise. It's not my expertise. Right. I have experience in it. I have knowledge in it. But if I were to have someone say, oh, I want to refer, you know, um, an LGBTQ couple to you, I'd take them on, but I'd also be assessing and evaluating myself and the care I'm giving them to see if they deserve a different level of care. You know, someone else who has a, a better um, equipped approach to treating LGBTQ couples than I do. And I'm okay with having that be a limitation of mine. And that goes true for other treatment issues as well. You know, there are certain treatment issues that I don't like treating or I don't like treating adolescents or children. Girl, that's a word. But I absolutely prefer not to. Can you can not responsible? Can you tell a little bit more about why you don't like treating children? And then I can tell you why I don't like treating children. (laughs) (laughs) So part of why I don't like treating children is I have a particular sensitivity to children and adolescents. And I always have. Like if I see, you know, a child, I, I, like hearing children cry makes me want to cry. Um, seeing children who are hurt in some way, it tears me apart. I did an internship in my graduate program at um, the, child, the Children's um, Advocacy Center of South Georgia. And that was a center, an agency that treated children who had experienced sexual and or physical violence. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I was only there for a few months because the center uh, ended up closing because the director was involved in some child sexual abuse um, scandal. What? But, right. Right. What? Right. Um, and so my whole time working there, every day, every client was a child from ages three to 15 who had been sexually abused or physically abused. And so working with the three-year-olds, sometimes there was a language barrier, meaning their parents at home didn't speak English as their first language. Other times it was like having to have a three-year-old explain to you how someone touched them was difficult. Like, I think it tested my ideas of self-care the entire internship. And even now, being the mother of a three-year-old little girl, I can't imagine my child having that experience and me being okay uh, okay knowing that, you know, and, and dealing with that as a parent. Um, and so that's part of it. Part of it is I, I can't handle seeing children hurt or mistreated. The other part of it is um, I have a lot of respect for child and adolescent therapists because it's a lot of work. You have to deal with the parents first. Mm-hmm. And then you have to deal with the children. And it's not always easy. It, it's a lot of work, meaning um, the process is a lot slower, in my opinion. The process is a lot more complicated because what children go through are, again, in my opinion, it's, it's primarily a result of what the adults around them put them through. So you're having to really explain to these grown people around this child, this kid is not the problem. You are part of the problem. Yep. You are causing this child's trauma or the unhealthy environment, and you need to change. A lot of adults, parents, caregivers, guardians, they don't want to hear that. They want to bring their child to your office, 
come, you fix them, make them behave better, and then bring them back home. That's not realistic. You can't take somebody out of, an, out of an environment, work on them, and not change that environment. Because when they come back to the environment, nothing is different for them. So all the work we've done, so it goes out the window when this environment is still unhealthy and still toxic. So I think that you have to be able to and have access to all these different parts of a child's life beyond just treating them as an individual. And it's really, really hard. I prefer working with people who are grown and who are able to communicate a little bit better and maybe have a little more autonomy about their environment and their life. Um, because the children, you know, it's really, really hard. And then if the parents around them or the adults around them don't like the fact that you're challenging things beyond just the child, they'll snatch them out of therapy. And then what happens? You never know if this kid gets the care they need. You never know if they're going to get a chance at being a healthy adult. And that can really sit with the person. And I just know that that's not how I want to practice. I, it's, it's too much of an emotional, personal, and mental tax, I think, on me to work with ch children and adolescents. I'll do adolescents uh, you know, as young as maybe 16 or 15, but younger than that, I tried not to. Right. Well, for me... I think you said a lot of why I hate, I, I was about to say I hate cheating children. I was at an event last night and everybody was like, oh, you're a black therapist. You treat, you treat kids? And I was like, I hate kids. Um, <laughs> it, 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 you touched on a lot of the things that I've touched on in my, my child work um, on this show and why I primarily turn down a lot of children who want to come to me. And it's very sad. Um, in my, in my, in my other job, I do psych rotations. So to be on a psych ward and see a, a 10 year old try to kill himself or a 12 year old try to commit suicide or to see a, a three year old who's there for psychotic episodes, three or um you know who have homicidal and suicidal ideations at three and four i think the the youngest i had was a four-year-old and he freaked me out um not not him specifically but just the idea that someone so young could have these problems so early knowing that it has to be trauma related but everybody's acting like it's not trauma related. It, it's just him being a bad kid. It was an it was an issue for me. And when I worked in Ringo Park, um I had a seven year old who came to me, a Chinese American or Asian Americans, they weren't Chinese, Asian American family. And I remember in the in the session, it's not a good story. I remember in the session um, we were doing the intake and the mom was there and she told me that the reason that she brought him in for me to fix him, because she said she wanted me to fix him, was that he was beating her. Oh, wow. And he was this little, like, cute, chubby face right. kid. And, I mean, he kind of just tell me, yes, I like to do hood rap things with my hood rap friends. But um, I'm like, I don't understand what that, like, from a african-american perspective right. who, who grew up in an environment where i used to get my behind whooped you know what i'm saying um i didn't i didn't get this and i, I thank god i didn't have to like beat my child i don't think beating your children are necessary or spanking them is even necessary in raising them but 
I I couldn't compute. Like, it didn't compute. And we were in the intake session, and the little boy snatched water from his mother. And Racine, I immediately snatched it from him. And then I dropped it, because I had to, like... I was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. But it shocked the mother. It shocked the little boy. And it shocked me. Like, my response was, like, immediately, like, you don't. Then I had to catch myself and apologize and say to this mother, I mean, say to the child, if you want something from your mother, ask her respectfully. But, see, I think that sometimes that that's what people need to see. Like, even with couples or with children and their parents, I think sometimes people need to see somebody else reacting differently to realize, oh, this is a problem. You know what I mean? Because even when I work with couples, sometimes, like with heterosexual couples, let's say, I'll have um, my husband talking down to his wife. And I'll stop him and say, why, why do you need to talk to her in that rude way? Is it really necessary to speak to her in that manner? Yeah. And they'll both be shocked. And it's like, yeah, this is not okay if this happens. You know, this is not this is not healthy behavior. And I think sometimes just seeing someone, or even like with a couple where one couple, one person, one partner is very um, emotional and the other person is non-reactive. I've had a couple where like the, you know, one partner was crying and moved closer to that partner and gave him tissues. And the other partner looked at me like, really? And I was like, well, yeah, this is how you respond to somebody crying and expressing emotional distress. And the next time that the partner cried, the other one moved closer and gave, her, gave them tissues. You know? So I yeah. think sometimes you need to see that modeling of, or at least like pointing out, like, what are you doing? And with, with children, you know, I work with families, I always tell them, whatever you do at home is what you do at home. But in my office, you're not going to disrespect your parents in front of me. You're not going to be rude to them in front of me. I'm not allowing that. It's not proper behavior for my office. And it really makes them think about, like, oh, wow, so I can't, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be behaving this way. Or my parents maybe don't deserve this kind of treatment. And then without that, they're going to continue on that same unhealthy behavior forever. Well, exploring... Exploring with the, the, the child, what I, I realized was that the mother was abused by almost everybody in the family. Of course. Um, the, the, his, culturally, her grand, his grandmother used to talk down to his mother. His, his dad used to talk down to his mother. He said that the mother and father fights and it scares him sometimes. So he was just modeling behavior that he saw. But like I said, when he snatched the water bottle from his mom... And I snatched it from him. <laughs> then right. I then I gathered myself quickly and apologized. Right. She she would use therapy as like a disciplinarian. Right. So after right. a few That's weeks, too. yeah. After a few weeks, once she told me, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell Miss Banks. I'm gonna tell Miss Banks on you." I had to refer them out. And working in an environment where it's about numbers and stats, mm-hmm. not so much about treatment and, and, and critical care. I knew culturally, she probably could, honestly, looking back on it, she probably could have benefited from having my strong black woman thing um, support her. But she wasn't in therapy. The baby was in therapy. And what I did was, is I referred them. It was in Rigo Park. So there is a plethora of, you know, Asian American um, clinicians, clinicians yeah. in that area because it's it's almost like they, they have their own little Chinatown over there. Yeah. Why are you here? 
So when I referred them out, my director was was very upset. But I I believe that cultural competence is the most important thing. And I didn't want to traumatize the kid. I definitely didn't think that it was, was beneficial for me to be the disciplinarian. And after a few weeks when the mom came back to me and she was like, how many more sessions is it going to take to fix him before he's fixed? I was like, no, I, I'm, this is this is not going to work for me. Because the dad wasn't in therapy. Grandma wasn't in therapy. The, the mom wasn't in therapy. And I'm like, you need to go to a support group for other women of your culture to figure this out. Because culturally, I can't, I don't, I can't relate. Like, I don't, I don't know an environment where children are allowed to like snatch things from their, like, I don't know that. (laughs) No, but I, I see, I went to school with white kids too. And we'll leave it at that. Like, I know how they get down. But that's not, that's, I don't know that in my, my own environment in my, like, you know, even my son is, is almost of age at this point, but he's like, uh, you know, I, if you were anybody else, I would have a different response to you. And I'm like, yeah, you keep it like that. You know, there are boundaries in, in place culturally for, for a lot of us. Yeah, the, the younger generation is changing that, but there are boundaries in place that, other communities don't have when it comes to parenting and and that kind of thing. Um, what is your challenge with couples? Because I also don't particularly love working with couples, to be honest. Um, I do it. Right. With couples, I think my limit is if there's active domestic violence happening, uh-huh. which I think should be a, a, um, a field-wide limitation. I don't think you can treat a couple where there's still actively domestic violence happening um, at home. I think that's unethical, but just my opinion. Um, that's my limitation, and um, I'm also like not a secret keeper, so I normally don't see the partners individually, just to avoid one of them divulging, oh, hey, I'm having an affair, but you can't tell my partner, kind of thing. Um, and what else? Yeah, I don't think I have very many limitations when it comes to couples. I think I've seen not every single thing possible, but I think I've seen a lot. And in my practice now, I'm seeing a lot more um, non-monogamous couples. Okay. Uh, who are also people of color, so that's opening up a, a new world of experience for me as well. Um, but yeah, I think with couples, it's because it's my preferred population, I don't think I have very many limitations with what and who I'll treat. My challenge with couples is, to me, I don't find couples couple counsel, couples counseling um, all that successful. Because usually they come at a point that one person wants to be there, the other person doesn't, and one person has already almost decided that they're going to leave. Oh. That's usually it. I, I, I have a theory now that if the woman pays for couples counseling, it's probably not going to work. That's just, that's just my theory. But usually what happens is, is that there's a man who reluctantly comes to couples counseling and he really doesn't want to be there. 
and there's a, a woman who is, is struggling to keep the relationship together. And I think that what this is just my challenge that I've seen with couples, the couples that I, I've worked with, is that usually one or two of them <laughs> don't want don't want to be there. And they're, they're holding on for whatever reason, but there's a lack of honesty in it. And my approach to couples counseling is always happiness. I don't know you enough to say that you guys are compatible. I don't know you well enough to say that you guys are a good fit. My goal is to make sure that you leave here with a better understanding of what you want to do, whether you want to stay together or not stay together. And if there are children to help you guys get to the point that you can, you know, happily or peacefully coexist to co-parent. But I, my goal is never really to keep the couples together. Um, and, and I think it kind of works for me because I'm, I'm, I'm not that invested in whether or not it looks like people think it's supposed to look. I think people think you come to couples counseling, you talk about it, you, you, you know, you're fixed, you stay in love, you stay together or whatever. But sometimes that's not the reality. Sometimes the reality is helping them successfully uncouple. Yeah, I don't think that my goal as a couples therapist is to keep them together. I think my goal is to help them get to a healthier place. And that and that word healthy is defined by them, not by me. Right. So if they think that healthy is them living in separate places, seeing each other on the weekends, and during the week having different partners, that's fine. I'm not promoting any specific um, configuration of couplehood or any specific idea of normalcy. I think that, um, yeah, I have couples like you described that come in and she's sort of dragging him in and he doesn't really want to be there. He's reluctant. But I also have couples where, and now I'm seeing this trend a lot more too, where the male partner will reach out to me and want couple therapy and bring, you know, his wife or girlfriend or whoever in with him. Um, so I don't know that, I don't know that I have the same experience with couples that, that you described, but I think that, um, my goal is always how do we get you to a healthier place? And mm-hmm. sometimes a healthier place is you two not being together. And sometimes it takes going to therapy and, you know, having the third person sort of see your dynamic to help you both realize that. Um, I, I think I've told a couple or two, you two really shouldn't be together if you're not willing to change and work on what we've all sort of pointed out and agreed are your issues. Um, I think also in couples work, you know, it is important to sort of have a boundary of I'm not invested in what happens in your relationship. You guys stay together, you break up, either way, I go home to my partner, so I'm not interested. I, I don't have a really, a, you know, a, a care about the outcome of this. But I do think that my first question for couples that come in is always, on a scale of 1 to 10, how close are you two to breaking up? Or is, is therapy like your last-ditch effort to keep your relationship together? Um, because if, if they're both sort of like, yeah, we're just here to see what sticks, but we kind of want to break up, then there's no point in being in therapy. Mm-hmm. Because if you kind of come in deciding that we're going to break up anyway, then is therapy the place to maybe talk about how do you amicably separate? How do you, you know, share the child care? Or how do you split up your differences? Or how do you decide on who moves out, who stays, or whatever? That could be a space that therapy is used for, which doesn't really fit, I think, the stereotype of couples therapy, but it doesn't have to be about staying together or getting back together. I've had people come in who aren't even together, but maybe share a child. Yeah. want to figure out how do we as a family sort of coincide? 
do we, you know, get along? How do we reconcile and maybe heal from some of our old differences to allow us to effectively parent together? Um, so yeah, I, I agree with you that the goal should never be, well, how do I keep you guys together? And that's what your goal is as a couple, then sure, I'm behind that goal. Right. But if your goal is we had this thing happen, we need to figure out how to get over it and move forward from it, and as far as staying together or not, we'll see how therapy goes to decide that, then that works for me too, you know? Um, but I have heard of, I have heard from couples I've seen that they've gone to other therapists in the past and they've either been pushed to like, you know, stay together for six months for therapy and then decide about breaking up or, you know, nobody can move out until whatever. Like, I think that every therapist, of course, practices differently and I do have experience of people, you know, talking about some of these more unhealthy or unproductive ways that can make couples that have seen like a waste of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a few more questions. Sure, go for it. How do you practice self care? Um, my self care is definitely in spending time with my fiance and daughter. Um, he is not a clinician or therapist or mental health uh, professional. Good for you. Which I think. <laughs> <laughs> also say I focus on treating black women and couples at a reduced rate and pro bono. Mm-hmm. Why at a reduced rate and pro bono and how can you afford to keep your lights on? So it's not that I only treat them at a reduced rate or pro bono. What I meant by that is that I also offer reduced rates for people, you know, for some people and I also do some pro bono work, meaning that I may, um, you know, go to events like the March of Black Women that we talked about before. 
I may go to events and be there as a healer or provide some pro bono services. Um, I may, like if I have people call me and they want therapy and money is the barrier, you know, I'll offer them, you know, sliding scale sort of things or different um, arrangements that will allow them to have access to therapy. Gotcha. So it's not everybody, it's not all the time, majority of my clients, my, my chiropractic clients are all self-paid people. And so <clears throat> my business plan was always to have enough self-pay at the full rate clients that I could afford to do some of the pro bono and reduced rate work. Um, so the percentages are definitely like 90% full pay and then the 10% pro bono or reduced rate people. Um, and then my practice that I'm part of in Staten Island, it, there's a very different structure there. So there's a lot more flexibility with that um, practice to, you know, to do some of the reduced rate and pro bono things. Gotcha. Um, what does being a black therapist mean to you? Ah, that's a big question. Um, but the first thing that comes to mind is defying the odds. I think there's a lot of stigma around black people don't go to therapy. We go to church. Um, therapy's not for black people. And so I think being a black therapist defies that whole entire notion. Um, the second thing that comes to mind is um, the idea of Sankofa. That's why I need my business, Sankofa Magic Family Therapy. Um, Sankofa is a West African um, bird. It comes from folklore. And the bird is um, has egg in its mouth. So it's flying backwards. Or flying forwards, rather. Excuse me. Flying forward, but looking backward. And there's an egg in the bird's mouth. And the idea of Sankofa is to use what's good or what you've learned from the past in order to have a better present and future. And so that's what I think about in being a black therapist is understanding what it means to be a black person in this country and how can we learn from our past and use all of the resilience and you know positive aspects of our tumultuous past in this country to have a better present and future. I think a part of that is mental health. You know, um, it's being a parent, uh, I'm the child of immigrant parents, I think that <clears throat> I've noticed as a trend is our parents were focused on survival and their survival was about having food, somewhere to live, and clothes on your back. Um, happiness or being <clears throat> being mentally healthy wasn't a part of it. I don't think they had the luxury of focusing on mental health. Because I see it as... Um, a tribute and sort of a, a paying it forward idea to my ancestors, my parents, my mother of being able to now, because of the sacrifices and their, you know, resilience and their hard work, that I can be in a space of thinking about, am I happy? Is my child happy? What can I do to further and foster her mental health? And, you know, expand the idea of, of living and of, of healthiness and happiness to include things like emotional intelligence and to include things like, you know, what is self-care? What are you doing to take care of yourself? Do you have a job and career that you love and not just focus on surviving? Um, and I see that as a luxury that not everybody has, um, and I'm grateful to have that luxury. And I think that being a black therapist, me, means being able to provide that sort of um, an outlook to other people and even just being um, you know 
inclusive and, and being someone that others can look at and see, you know, if she can do it, why can't I? I don't think having a PhD makes me special. I don't think that um, having a PhD means much of anything. I think it's, it was my personal path, my personal journey, and what I do with it, you know, could mean something. So um, it's important to me to, to be noticed and seen as a black therapist for all those reasons. And what has been your experience as a uh, patient or going to therapy? Um, I think going to therapy is so amazing. Um, I think that every therapist should go to therapy. Um, <clears throat> my experience has been, it's been mostly positive. I can't say that, but I've, I've had some bad um, couples therapy. My fiance and I have gone to therapy together in the past, um, and we've encountered some, you know, questionable therapists. But personally, um, I enjoy it. I think it's really difficult to be um, the client in the room when you're used to being the therapist in the room. I think it's an ongoing learning process. But I do think that it's an important part of me being able to be um, a good clinician. Because, you know, you can't give them an empty well. So I think that if I'm not aware of my stuff and my shortcomings and my, you know, difficulties or my um, needs, then I'm not doing my clients justice by um, coming to them without having my stuff, you know, worked on or in the process of being worked on. You know what? I guess I've never thought about that. So for me being a, a, a clinician, the thing that sticks out the most <laughs> to me is kind of seeing everybody else's shit. Like I can, I can see mental health issues and diagnosis come down the streets. It's literally, Absolutely. I, 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 I liking it to uh, the sixth sense, that movie where it's like, I, I see crazy people. Like I see them, <laughs> I see them all the time. And I remember going to my, my therapist and saying, why didn't you tell me that I was going to see everybody else's mental health issues all the time? Like, why didn't you, like, how do I turn this off in my brain? And he was like, Nikki, you don't, but I've never been in a space with him as a patient and thought anything about theory or thought it, I've never dissected like his practice like methods like I've never I've, I've I think that that's so weird to me like I've never been I've never not been present in therapy I think I've only done that when it's been couples therapy because um I, I think that when it was my, in my individual therapy, it's my space to vent and, you know, say the things that I don't want people to know I'm thinking and whatever. So I think I'm able to be present in a different way when it's just me. When it's couple therapy, I think that I, it will, I'm able to be critical and sort of meta to it because I'm thinking about what I want him to or her to point out about my partner and what I want them to say to him or get him to understand. So I'm thinking about, like, I wouldn't do that in that way if this was my, you know, my couple. Maybe that's part of the problem is that I'm not being present because I'm trying to get them to fix him, you know, it's to, it's to get my agenda across sometimes. So I don't understand that part. But I think that part of my training in both my graduate program, but also more so my doctorate program, was about that self-therapist work and about, you know, what are you bringing into the therapy room with you as the therapist? And how can you be aware of those things 
and not get rid of them because they're part of who you are as a person and maybe you can work on something. But how can you be aware of that? And again, be responsible to yourself, to your practice and to your clients and not you know, have that counter-transference happen or not project things or not somehow harm someone else because of your own hurt and your own trauma. So um, that's something that I, that I think is... Um, an important part of my practice is always having a self-love therapist idea in my head, always being aware of myself and always being aware of what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, what I'm saying, when I'm triggered by clients, knowing what my triggers are, knowing how to handle that in the moment, knowing when to refer people out, that kind of thing. Because you're only human. You can't not be you, even though you're a therapist or a mom or whatever. But I do think that there's a way to turn it off. I don't think that I'm always thinking clinically or therapeutic critically um, wherever I am. I think I, you know, some things may trigger a thought or may sort of like be highlighted in my mind, but there are times and places where I'm just like, I'm not even thinking about that therapy stuff right now. I'm not right. even in that, head, that mental space. And other times I don't mean to be where it just happens, you know, organically. So I get what you're saying. It's hard. Yeah. I, I feel in my work with black women, um, especially in my private practice, they bring up my stuff a lot. Absolutely. Like a lot of a lot of what I I am telling them sometimes is advice that I need to hear. Yeah. Like yesterday I was in a a, a therapy session with a a matter of fact, I feel like there and that for some reason with my clients there are themes for the day. Absolutely. So yesterday the themes for the day was sisterhood. Okay. Um and I remember asking my client if her sister wasn't her sister, would she be her friend? And I remember listening in the moment and I was like, damn, that's a good question. Number one. And number two, I was like, I have to come back to this because I have sisters. And would my sisters be like, would I be my sister's friend if we weren't related? Would would they be my friends if we weren't related? Like, I have to put a pin in this for later. But I, I feel like in my work, especially with black women, they usually highlight things that I know that I need to work on. Have you found that to to be true? Yeah, I definitely think that my clients come in waves where, you know, there's a wave of like infidelity or there's a wave of, um, you know, self-care needed or boundary setting. That's or so weird. Things will happen in clumps for like weeks at a time or just, you know, months at a time. Um, I do, I, yes, I definitely, when I'm talking to black women, I feel like, and I think in my head sometimes, like, okay, girl, you're definitely talking to yourself too, so don't forget what you're saying and apply it to yourself when session's over. Um, but I think that's part of the beauty of working with black women is that we're all in this same sort of space, right? That we have different experiences, we have different trajectories, different paths, but we have a shared experience of being black women. And things that happen to us aren't necessarily so foreign, um, despite our differences and backgrounds and everything else. And I think that the important thing for me as a clinician is always to remain curious. So even though I'm relating in my mind and I'm thinking, yeah, girl, I know what you mean, I know, I know how that feels, I still have to ask because her version of it may be different than mine. Her version may look different than mine, even though I, I feel it on a very intimate level. Um, and there are definitely times that I'm in there like testifying with them and saying, yes, I understand all these different places. And that makes 
makes it it's so unique because other clinicians would be able to do that with them. They wouldn't be able to understand in that same way. And so I think of it as a gift and a curse because sometimes, like you said, you, you got to think about, well, okay, this sounds really familiar for some reason. And I really think about why this is so triggering and why this is sticking out. Um, but again, that goes back to that self therapist work, you know, and, and knowing and knowing your stuff and being able to unpack that and address it. Yeah. Um. In your work with couples and, and, and men and women in general, how far apart do you feel the black woman is from the, the black man's experience? And I'll just give you an example. Last night, I went to see a movie. My friend premiered his, his movie. Um, and on the way home, I drove an actor and a director home. And these two black men who I know, I knew one of them. He's an excellent actor. He's a great man. He's community leader, et cetera. And we got into kind of a heated debate about black women needing to um, sympathize more with black men in terms of our privilege and checking our privilege in a way that doesn't emasculate them. And of course, this was a heated, this was a heated conversation. Um, Even though I get it, I get it as a black woman, I am definitely privileged in, in some ways. But um, in your work with couples, like what challenges do you think we face in terms of the black man and the black woman? Because I feel like the both of us are usually fighting to be heard and empathized with. And I think that that's a huge barrier to us being able to move forward and doing the work. How much time do we have for this conversation? Um, well, so my dissertation was about black men. It was about, um, you know, self-reported experiences of racism that black men go through and whether or not that impacts their decision to marry. I spoke to men who were single, heterosexual, never married men. So I do feel that there's a part of the black male, uh, men, men, woman uh, dynamic that involves us black women um, learning more about what black men go through. I don't know if it's about having more sympathy or empathy for them. I think it is a, maybe about compassion, but I think that it's about understanding, maybe, and going back to slavery and all those things and just how, over time, the role the black man has played both in our community and at, you know in society in general. Um, I also feel like black men and women are constantly placed as adversaries in so many different ways in society. Yep. I think that's a big root of the problem as well. I don't think that either group hears the other because we each group has so much pain that they want to be heard, you know, first. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what needs to change in terms of do we hear them first or do they hear us first, whatever. I, um, I got an opinion on that. <laughs> I think black men. I think black men need to talk. I think the black yeah. women are in therapy. I also think that they need to be given space and they need to be given the tools to have these conversations. Because I don't think that we socialize men to be emotionally expressive. I don't think we socialize men to have certain kinds of conversations, and we allow them to sort of skate through without being like, oh, you know, they don't talk, or you know, they won't, they won't say that, and he shows other ways. Like, no, make him answer some questions, make him talk. Just let them be, oh, they're men. You know how men are. Yeah, I know how men are. That's part of the problem. We need to change, you know, help men be different. 
to be different as well. But here's the thing, though. If they don't have the skills and the tools and the abilities to do this, and they refuse to go and get the help that's necessary to get the skills, the tools, and abilities to get this. What do we do? Because black women are in therapy. Black women are in therapy. Black women are doing the work. I'm not saying that we need to give them those tools. I'm saying that we need to raise our sons differently. But see, this is the this is I don't, I don't mean to cut you off, but you are the, you are the mother of a of what will be a black woman, and I am the mother of what is a black man at this point, right? So right. my my conversation with the gentleman in the car was he was saying no black men have pain black men have pain and I was like black men's pain is black women's pain if you grew up in a single household single parent household we all know that the black woman is the the center of of the community's moral compass absolutely period and and I, I tell, you know, my family, I have a family member who's gay and I explain to him all the time, men are nasty. And the only thing stopping men from being as nasty as they want to be is women. So if you put two men in a sexual situation, you are going to have to be some, one of you guys are going to have to be the, the, the moral compass of this. One of you guys are going to have to be a little bit more safe than the other, because the two of you together, you're not thinking about that. So... Ayala has a saying that I've had before she had it, which is don't that we not gonna we not gonna do this. We're not gonna do this about Ayala right now. I got a I got an old show about her. We're not gonna do this. <laughs> and shout out to da- to Damon Van Zant, because he's he's now a friend. But we're not about to do this. Um Ayala has a saying, which I think is fact because I had this saying before she did, which is a black man is who his mama made him. And that is fact. We are the moral, huh? That's, that's fair. We have we are the moral compass of our community. So as he was arguing and saying he wants to have this this thing that he was maybe thinking about televising because he was a director to to have black women listen to black men, I told him. I don't think that that's the idea. I think the idea is to have black men talk to black men because black women are listening to everybody. I wrote this, this, this relationship book and I'm taking a risk. You know why? Because just like you said, when I was working in Rigo Park and the women that came to me were older black women, they would say, you're too young and you don't have the life experience to, to help me as if life experience is all you need. Number one, I have the training and I have the life experience of people four times older, older than me because I've dealt with over and overcome so much in my young life and the trauma that I've dealt with. And I'm still here. I'm not on drugs. I'm not crazy. I don't have a diagnosis and we good. Right. I've had that challenge. I've also had couples come to me and well, not in, in practice, but in in streets, in the streets, in theory, or I would never listen to somebody who's not married tell me about relationships. I would never listen to this. And marriage is not the goal for everybody. That's not my happiness quotient to to be to be married. I don't. It works for some. It doesn't work for others. Like that's not why I'm that's here. I'm not here to. Absolutely. I'm not here to judge, but I have the training, skills, and ability to help assist you in your situation. So writing this relationship book, I also know that my. Tar- 
target audience is black women. I was told also, don't limit yourself. I'm not limiting myself. Like you said, I am working towards my skills, talent, and ability. And I'm using that to to assist the people who don't usually have the access to the services as other people do. I've been in rooms and spaces with with white people who have gotten mad at me because I've said, in my private practice, I primarily serve people of color. I have some, you know, SUS is an organization in New York City, and I love the title because it's services for underserved. I worked with the underserved and underrepresented community. And if you as a the, the white guy that asked me for my card and got offended that I refused to give it to him, he told me when he was asking for it, I collect therapists. I said, that's why I'm not for you. Because if you can have you have an access to a collection of us, then you don't need me. Right. I know that black women are listening mostly to black men to tell them what to do and how to relate in this world. And it's not as if they really know our experience. There are a number of love and relationship experts who are just telling you what they think you should do in relationship with no theory, no education, no nothing from either a a religious perspective or just a, I used to be a player. I'm going to tell you how not to get played perspective. Black men need to be in an environment where they're held accountable by each other. And they are taught the skills necessary by each other and that they're in an environment where they are vulnerable enough to say, I don't know what I'm doing and I need you to help me get their brother. That's, that's what's missing. I really appreciated um, when Jay-Z had that, that, um, like that barbershop sort of talk with all those other black men. They were talking to each other. Jay-Z thought, did? Yeah, it wasn't like it wasn't televised. It was like as part of his like album thing last time. But you can YouTube it. It's like him and all these other black entertainers, famous people talking in a room of some sort about relationships and about like their role in relationships, like that that they've done to their partners and the mistakes they've made and what they've learned. I think I think that idea and that setup, I believe, was some of what you were saying and what I think this happen more of. Rather than telling me how to catch a man, keep a man, and treat him well, tell your other men how to be better men. Yes. Tell them how to be better partners and fathers and, and everything else. Talk to them about what your shortcomings are as a community and how to make that difference. Because it's and missing. Like you said, it's, yeah, like that's the part that's missing. And that's why my, my focus on my dissertation on black men, because they're missing from research as well. They're missing from discussions in research about black couples and black families. And that's the problem. You can't focus on one half all the time. You have to look at the whole picture. And they're never a part of the picture. So what was your hypothesis? My hypothesis was that, um, if I can remember it correctly at this point, I believe that it was that um, because of the impact of racist experiences that they've had that despite those experiences that heterosexual single and married black men still do desire marriage and all of my participants except for one desired marriage at some point in their lifetime I didn't look at whether you know of course whether they were going to get married or I didn't look at I was trying to figure out like what are the barriers because research says that black 
black community is the most uncoupled community of all. But research also says that black people desire relationships and marriage. Okay. And so where's the disconnect? What are the factors that keep those two numbers at such a disparity? And um, so I was trying to look at that. Like I had all these different um, factors, like all these different um, what's the word? demographic factors as far as income, whether you had children, whether you've been in jail, whether you were educated for the black men to see if there was some within group differences. And there really wasn't. You know, they all wanted to be married. They all, and they all had super stressful, super impactful racist experiences. Um, because I do think that there isn't any topic in the black community that you can talk about that doesn't go back to slavery. Right. Not as a, not as an apologizing way, but as a way of, this is what our origin in this country was. And so all these different things that we're dealing with now aren't separate from that. Um, and I think that's part of the understanding piece that I was talking about is that I think we need to better understand both sides and what each, you know, side has been, has been uh, rapp- grappling with all this time. What, and, and you were not able to figure out what a barrier, what the barrier is? I think that I need to do a, a second uh, research study that is more qualitative where we're talking and having conversations to, to speak about, okay, so since you all desire marriage and since you all have all these different demographic factors but still have this commonality, then what's keeping you unmarried? What's keeping the black um, community unmarried? And I think that my, so part of my hypothesis was that black people, that we couple differently. Like you said, we, like, we may not marry all the time. It doesn't mean that we don't have a family. It doesn't mean that we don't have the dynamics and all the intentions and purposes of a married couple. And I think that marriage is a very Eurocentric idea. You know, that we Afrocentric um, communities do things in a more egalitarian and more community kind of way, where it isn't just men and women, it's family. Well, we weren't, we legally, we were not allowed to marry in this country. Right. So that was part of it too. But even despite us not being allowed to marry, before um, you know, before the Jim Crow era, there were more married couples then than there are now in this country. But I think that even that piece of research is misleading because of the fact that there were all people who were couples that just not married. So marriage, I think, isn't the gold standard. It shouldn't be the gold standard. But because of our Eurocentric society, it is. And so they may look at these numbers of data and say, oh, black people are, are married. But it doesn't mean they were uncoupled. It doesn't mean that we don't have families, we don't have communities, and we don't have all the same parts and components of marriage. So I think that's a piece of it. And I think that people are cohabiting more than getting married. There's a definitely a trend in the last 20 years of cohabitation taking the place of marriage. And, you know, people who cohabit before marrying uh, mostly don't end up marrying. And um, their marriages don't tend to last as long as those who don't cohabit. So it's, it's really a mixed bag of, of where the, the problem, you know, lies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Also financial as well. I, I, I can think of a plethora of reasons why marriage is not the same. I have, you know, several Jewish friends and living in a Jewish community um, myself. They have a like almost a hookup club. I don't want to say it like that. That sounds bad. But they have like a matchmaker club for young professionals in my community. And they advertise free membership because they want 
people to to get together. They're in the synagogue. You know, they 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 socialize differently. Like I know my Jewish friends who desire to be married have joined singles groups. We don't have that same kind of communal pressure to marry, even though, you know, my partner is successful. He he's he's a great dude. He's a great dad. His mom told him, like, why? Like, why would you marry? And this is a woman who's been married for 37 years. So I, I don't think that we have that internal pressure to marry. And in some environments, we don't even have that external pressure to marry. So it becomes a thing. But I think that it needs to be, and I agree with you, but I also think that, like, my question in my mind when you're speaking was, like, why do we need to marry, right? Like, I think that marriage itself being the, what you should aspire to do is part of the issue. Because marrying, beyond the legal components of it, like, what does marrying mean? Legal is very important. Huh? Legal is very important. No, I'm not saying it's not I'm saying beyond that, what is being married, just the idea of it? And I'm someone who's planning to be married in a few months, absolutely. But my thing is, like, what does being married mean? Can people really say, beyond just, oh, well, we're married, we have this wedding and whatever, what does that mean? What's the commitment? What does the, the status, what is the, the act of it, what does that mean to each individual who's doing it? It's different. And that being upheld across the board. It's different for or everybody. It's the same business transaction, legal transaction that, that it started out as being. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the march, because you you referred to us talking about the march, but we talked about it off air. So tell us a little bit about the march, what you will be doing there, and also let them know how they can get in contact with you. So the organization called um, Black Women's Blueprint, they are having a march for black women um, on September 29th in D.C. and September 30th in New York City. And the march is really about promoting black women as um, a very important voting group. It's really about getting our political voice heard and creating our own spaces. Not not trying to get a seat at the table, but creating our own table around how powerful black women as a collective are when it comes to our voting rights and how we use our voices as voters to champion and advocate for people political spaces, but also the issues that will benefit Black women and the Black community as a whole. So I would be, I would be at the march on September 30th in Manhattan as part of the Healing Caravan. For anyone planning to attend, Healing Caravan um, members will all be in all white, so you can identify us throughout the march, and we'll be there to provide support and other, you know, services, not to do therapy, but just to help support those who are at the march um, who may be triggered or who may have questions or concerns and things and not know where to get those resources from. We would be the people that could help you, you know, talk with you, sit with you, but also point you in the direction of, of other services that can be of service to you and of help to you. Um, how to reach me? My private um, practice, again, is called Sankofa Marriage and Family Therapy. And my website is sankofatherapynyc.com. And Sankofa is spelled S as in Sam, A N as in Nancy, K O F as in Frank, A, therapynyc.com. My email address is the same, sankofatherapynyc at gmail.com as well. Okay. And are you on Instagram or social media? Yes. On Instagram, um, I'm 
nutritionist in Sitco for therapy NYC. Okay. So thank you for being on um, Black Therapist Podcast. I enjoyed our conversation. We got a meet up for coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Since you're in my city, I, I speak to so many people who are not in my in the tri-state area. Oh, um, okay. So since you're in my city, I, we definitely yeah. need to, to finally meet. Because I feel like we've been in a few groups together, right? Okay. Yeah, I think so. Okay, yeah, we've been in a few online um, groups together for clinicians of color. And oh, yeah, we can have a conversation about those, too. <laughs> oh, we can do that off air. Yes, of course. Because it is what it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, we're going to definitely do that off air. But I want to I thank you for, for coming on. I also want to thank you for what, what it is that you do. What we what we provide to the community is a service. We are in a service based uh, industry, and it's very challenging to to decide actively to pursue a career to work with a population that doesn't know that they need you, and sometimes doesn't value what it is that you you do until they're in that space. And so I want to thank you for um, what it is that you that you do for the black community and for women in general. Well, thank you for creating and maintaining the space of the Black Therapist podcast so that we can have these sorts of conversations on a broader scale. Okay. yes. Thank you. That's it. I want to thank you guys for rocking with us for this new upcoming season of Black Therapist Podcast. I look forward to being a resource to you to provide you with tips, strategies, and information on both mental health issues and mental health diagnosis. I look forward to having as many Black therapists come on the platform to let you guys know that there are clinicians of color out there that do want to serve you and serve the community. And we are doing the good work. You can follow us on all of our social media platforms. They're not all Black Therapist Podcasts, but on our social media platforms, you can also follow me at Miss Nikki, N-I-K-I Banks on Instagram. You can follow the book page at Finding Happy 7, number 7. And you can hit us up on Instagram at Black Therapist Podcast. And we're also on, you know, Twitter, Facebook is whatnot. Okay. Thank you guys for rocking with us for another episode of Black Therapist Podcast. And I want you guys to be well. Bye.